The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I was on staff with a ministry called Young Life in Columbia, Missouri. And the ministry reached out to high school students. And one of the high school students that I became friends with was a young man named Frankie. Frankie was an African-American boy. Uh, He was a pretty good kid considering his circumstances. He had a rough life. He was abandoned uh, by both his parents. When I met him, he was living in a house with a woman that was pregnant doing drugs. And he lived in her basement, which was unfinished. And his room consisted of a bed and four bed sheets uh, corning off his area to live. Frankie made a lot of great choices in life, uh, even though he didn't really have the mentors around him to help guide him and lead him. Well, Trish and I adopted Frankie, and we, uh, we had him live with us. I can't remember if it was for a year or two years. Uh, but during that time, Frankie grew tremendously. His grades turned around, and he became an elite runner in track and cross country. And things were going in the right direction for Frankie. Well, during this time, I went away for a conference for some training. And one of the nights that I was there, a bunch of us went and saw this movie called Antoine Fisher. Maybe you have seen it, maybe you haven't, but it's a story very similar to Frankie's. A story of a young man named Antoine uh, who was abandoned by his parents. He bounced from house to house to house. Uh, He made several good decisions in life and grew up to be a fine young man uh, serving in the military. And so when I came back, I told Frankie I wanted to take him to see this movie. And he was very skeptical at first, but we went and we watched this movie And frankly, Frankie was deeply moved by the movie. On the ride home, we had several very good and deep discussions. Even trailing off from that movie, we had several very good discussions. Frankie went on to to run in college, and I think part of his motivation was even seeing that movie um, and identifying with it. And I bring that up because movies and books and biographies are so powerful to us. Because as we learn about other people's stories, we also learn about our own story. The best movies are movies that overlap with our own experiences in some way, shape, or form, even if it's somebody from a different culture or in a different stage of life. And when we watch these movies and read these stories, it makes us analyze our own life and take a fresh look at our own story. Well, today we're going to look at one of the most famous stories in the history of mankind. One of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's the story of the parting of the Red Sea and God delivering Israel through it. It's a story that is referred to time and time and time again in the Old Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 10, it actually tells us that the reason for the Exodus is to be an example to us. And so as we look at this historically true story today, I want you not to just look at Israel's story, but I want you to look through Israel's story to your own story of salvation. And so if you would please open to Exodus chapter 14. We'll be reading the whole chapter, spacing it out throughout the sermon. It's page 56 in the Red Bible and page 108 in the Children's Bible. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been walking through Exodus, and Exodus starts with the Israelites being in bondage in Egypt, in slavery, and brutally killed by Pharaoh and by his servants and by the people of Egypt. 
they cry out to the Lord for salvation and deliverance. And so the Lord sends his servant Moses to come and bring plagues upon Egypt. And after the 10th plague, Egypt forces them out. And so they leave the region of Goshen and they follow the presence of the Lord in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And it leads them kind of wandering in Egypt. And instead of taking them the short path to Canaan, it takes them the long path south. And then we see the Lord leads them to a point where they are absolutely helpless. And he does it both for his glory and for their salvation. And it's not only their story, it's our story. Before we dig in, let's pray and we'll go through it slowly together. Lord God, as we dig into your word this morning, we are reminded that it is not just simply the words of men, but it is the word of God for us. And today, as we see the salvation of Israel, let us see and rejoice in our own salvation. And if we, someone is here today and they do not know you and they have not been saved, as you've told us, that we must be saved. God, pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Not by anything that we have done, but by your great mercy and grace and love towards us in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to divvy up the text today and walk through it. And there are three major subplots that I want to look at. The first is needing salvation. And then the second is seeing salvation. And the third is responding to salvation. That's actually different than your bulletin if you're a note taker. But those are the three subplots I want to walk through. So first, let's look at needing the Lord's salvation. Look in verse one with me, if you would says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Let's pause there for a second. The Lord told Israel to change directions in such a way that the Egyptians would have thought these people are lost. They are wandering. They have no leader. And so Pharaoh and his servants see this and his servants come to Pharaoh because they recognize that when Israel left, that they don't like scrubbing the floor. They don't like taking the trash out. They don't like making the bricks. They don't like being the servants. And so they go to Pharaoh and they say, let's go and pursue Israel and bring them back that they may be our slaves. And if they will not, let's kill them. And so they go out to go get Israel. Verse 6, so he, Pharaoh, made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out 
defiantly or boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea, by Pi-Haharath, in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. We can understand the fear of Israel, can't we? I mean, there they were on one side was the Red Sea. On the other side was one of, if not the most powerful military on the face of the earth. We read here that Pharaoh comes with 600 chariots, each carrying probably three soldiers. So 1,800 trained soldiers on one side of you. Not only that, we read that Pharaoh also brought all the other chariots of Egypt. In addition to that, in verse 9, all Pharaoh's horsemen and his army. Israel was afraid because they were surrounded by death. If they went east, they drowned. If they went west, they would be killed by the sword. Now, as I said earlier, as we look at Israel's story, we must also look at our own story. And we see that in this life, we are in the exact same predicament as Israel. Death surrounds us. Death looms over us. And there is no way of escape. It doesn't matter how much you exercise, how much you diet, or how many surgeries you have done. Death is inescapable. And death's Pharaoh is Satan, and his soldiers are his demons. And he is stronger than us, mightier than us. Not one of us gets out of this world alive. Now, how do we respond to that reality? So many times we just try to push it to the back. Or maybe we romanticize it with some helpful quotes from some famous people. Look how Israel responded. Verse 10, continuing. It says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What then? What, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel cries out to the Lord, but this is by no means a cry of faith. We can see that as they turn their attention upon Moses and start blaming Moses out of fear and panic. Israel didn't cry out to the Lord for an 11th plague, but rather they cried out to Moses, why have you done this to us? It is your fault that we are going to die. We see that their primary response to the reality of death was bitterness and anger and resentment and most of all, great fear. It's interesting, I saw an article this week on WikiHow that actually gives us steps to deal with the fear of death. Step one, realize it's a cycle. People are born and people die. How comforting is that? <laughs> Step two, know that people won't forget you. 
at least for the next 30 years, right? And then what? Step three, don't worry about it. It's really helpful, isn't it? Don't worry about it. And step four, be optimistic. (laughs) You'd think there'd be a better answer than that. And there is. Amen. You know, the problem with all of these steps is that they deal with the fear of death, but they don't deal with death itself. All of us will die at least once. But the question is, will you die again? What do you do about the reality of death in your life? Maybe you don't think about it because you don't want to. Maybe you are paralyzed with fear over it. Or maybe you have seen the good news that we look at today, the best news, the gospel news, that salvation comes from the Lord. And he triumphs over all of his enemies, even death itself. And so we are all needing the salvation of the Lord. And he calls us to see the salvation of the Lord. Look with me in verse 11, just for context, backing up a little bit. And we'll read through verse uh, 14. They said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They would have rather been slaves than die. That's how afraid they were. And now my two favorite verses in the book of Exodus. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. What profound words from God's servant Moses. Stand firm. Fear not. It's really the same command. One is in the positive light. Stand firm. The other one is in the negative light. Fear not. Don't do this. Do this. Look up and see the salvation of the Lord. See the salvation that does not come by your negotiation skills. See the salvation that does not come by the bearing of swords or by human effort or by ingenuity. But a salvation that comes from the Lord alone. And all you have to do is be silent. All you have to do is watch the Lord accomplish your salvation on your behalf. A salvation in which you are not soldiers, but you are spectators, but also benefactors. You know, I can imagine how hard it would have been for the Israelites to hear this command. It might have been the hardest command that they could have received, right? If, if Egypt is coming in on you and they say, be still, don't run, don't fight, don't do anything, that would be a tremendously difficult command. I mean, these were slaves. These were people who knew hard work and they were told, do nothing. 
It so much parallels our own American society. We are built on a culture of people that work very, very hard. And God tells us, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Do nothing from your own effort. Watch and see what the Lord God will do for you. You know, Christianity is simultaneously the easiest religion in the world and the hardest religion in the world. It is the easiest religion in the world because you have to do nothing to contribute to your salvation. But it is the hardest religion in the world because you can do nothing to contribute to your salvation. And we also want to contribute to our salvation, don't we? And yet the Lord says, be still, be quiet, and watch me work salvation. See, Christianity is not about what we do, but what God does on our behalf to save us from the enemy of death. And so, watch, be still, do nothing. Look and be amazed by the Lord God, who is the author and the architect and the accomplisher of your salvation. Let's read on. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God here is laying out the plan of salvation for the Israelites. And as we continue in the story and we see God act out this salvation, there are three aspects of it that I want you to see. The first is this, that the Lord defends until salvation. Look in verse 19 with me as we continue. It says, Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night with, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The pillar of God's presence was guiding and directing the people of Israel, but now it had gone behind them to defend them and to protect them from their enemies, the Egyptians. It was holding back certain death until God could make the path of deliverance and salvation. And this wasn't just for a few hours. Here we read, it took all night for God to divide the sea and to dry out the land that they might cross it. That it actually, it was a wind that came from an east. And so I think the, the, the waves probably broke and, and started to divide on the other side and came towards them. And then it dried out. And not only that, they had to cross through the Red Sea, which could have taken days. And so for potentially days, the Lord stood to defend Israel against the death of the Egyptians. The Lord is protecting them and to the hour of their deliverance and their salvation. You know, the same is true today. All of us are indebted to God's justice. We learn in scriptures that the penalty of sin 
is death. And we may look at that reality in Scripture and say, I'm not dead. I'm still alive. God hasn't killed me. Maybe God's not real. Maybe God forgot. Maybe God's a little bit slow in taking care of what he said. But what we read in Scripture as we carry on is the reason why God does not kill people immediately upon sin is not because he is forgetful, but because he is merciful and he is loving and he is gracious and he wants people to repent and believe and know the salvation of the Lord. Second Peter 3 goes into this in more in depth. And it says this, they will say, where is the promise of his second coming? Talking about Christ's second coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's changed. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly when Christ returns. Then verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but it is, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The apostle Peter is telling us that the reason why Christ has not yet returned to judge us is not because he is slow, but because he is patient and loving and desires that all would turn and trust in Christ for their salvation. If you're here today and you are alive, it is because the mercy of God. But not only is, is the mercy of God that you're not killed upon sin, but it's the mercy of God that you're here today to hear the story of salvation. This is God's plan for your life. There is no accident that you're here this morning. God wants you to know him and know the great salvation that he provides. He protects us. He preserves us from judgment and destruction. But as we continue, we also see that the great architect of salvation also delivers us. Look in verse 21 with me. It says, Then Moses, as commanded by God, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Israel was facing certain death and there was no way out. They were like fish in a barrel. And yet God miraculously provides a way of deliverance and salvation that they could have never possibly imagined. A way to the other side, a way to escape death and slavery and destruction. You know, 1,500 years later, God provided another way of salvation, another way of deliverance that was not only temporal, but was eternal. And that way was not a path, but it was a person. John 14, 4, Jesus, in talking about heaven, says, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to them, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way, the one and only way, and the truth, and the life. No one, not one, comes to the Father except through me. You know, it's so funny in studying this passage. I mean, it never occurred to me before, but, but God only made one path of deliverance. 
for the, for the Israelites. Only one path for salvation. And my guess is, as Israel was walking through that path to the other side of the Red Sea, to, the, to deliverance and to salvation, none of them were there complaining, going, God, why can't you have multiple paths? You know, why can't you make one dry, dry run over there, one dry run over there? No, they were elated that God had provided salvation and deliverance for them. And yet, how silly is it today that in our culture we say, why would God only provide one path of salvation? Through Jesus, certainly he would provide multiple paths. But don't you know that all of us are destined for destruction? And it is glorious news that he provides even one path for salvation. And that one path is his son, Jesus Christ. And so the Lord defends us until salvation. He delivers us unto salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, the Lord destroys completing salvation. Verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, when the Egyptian sun god Ra was at his fullest, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. God, in his final act of salvation in chapter 14, brings judgment and destruction upon the Egyptians. And it was a very appropriate judgment and destruction. If you remember, the book of Exodus starts, and in, in verse 22 of chapter 1 of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh gives this command. He gives this command that every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh in Egypt drowned the sons of Israel, and now the God of Israel, the Lord God, is drowning the sons of Egypt. You see, a key part of the salvation that God has architect is his complete destruction of all of his and our enemies. We discussed this a few weeks ago, but we live in a time that's called the already and the not yet. Because God's kingdom has come in the first coming of Christ, he's redeeming his people, bringing them to himself, reversing the devastating effects of the fall. But the kingdom has not yet been completed. The world is still broken. Satan is still tormenting God's people. Christ has won the war at the cross. Yet till Christ returns, the battle wages on. And yet there is a time coming where Christ will return. And there will be no more battles, no more struggles, no more sin, no more temptation, no more sadness, and no more death. For Christ will utterly and completely 
destroy and triumph over all of his and our enemies. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 puts it this way. It says, then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, we often don't think of a warrior God. We think of a soft and gentle God. But we need a God that will put a death to death. We need a God that will put a death to misery. We need a God that will put a death to suffering and injustice. This is what our hearts long for. And we are promised that God will come and one day destroy all the sadness in the world and bring his kingdom of joy and salvation fully and completely to rule over the world for all eternity. For those who trust in Christ, our salvation has been secured at the cross. But when Christ returns, he will utterly destroy all of our enemies and even death itself. Now, as we look at the deliverance and the salvation of the Lord. And we look at this story of the parting of the Red Sea. I think if you're like me, maybe you lose a little bit of awe over this story. Because you've heard this as a young child. It's in movies. People talk about it. You've heard about the parting of the Red Sea. And we forget just how amazing and draw-dropping this miracle of salvation is. I love the story of the little boy who came back from Sunday school one morning, and the father asked, what did the teacher talk about today? And he said, how the people of Israel were kept in Egypt and used as slaves by this guy called Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh let them go, he changed his mind and sent his army after them. And his father replied, then what? What happens next? Well, the boy continues, Moses calls in the Israeli Air Force, And they attacked the Egyptian tanks and destroyed them on the ground. They also gave cover while the engineers laid down the pontoon bridge across the Red Sea. And then the people of Israel crossed over without getting their feet wet. But when the Egyptian army got on the pontoon bridge, the Air Force came back and bombed it away and the Egyptians drowned. The father, surprised, said, Is that what your teacher told you? And the boy responded, Well, Not exactly. But if I told you what she said, you wouldn't believe me. This is an amazing, miraculous work of salvation. Dividing the Red Sea to make a path for the people of God to escape death and to be saved. We are told to fear not and stand firm. And be in awe of the salvation of the Lord because he defends us, keeping us alive until salvation. He delivers us through Jesus Christ unto salvation. And finally, he destroys all of his and our enemies, even death itself. We desperately need salvation. The Lord has gloriously authored and accomplished salvation through his own son, Jesus. And now that we have seen the salvation of the Lord, how should we respond? to such a great God and such a great salvation. Well, 
In Exodus chapter 15, which is the next chapter, we see a further demonstration of the response to the salvation of Israel. And we'll get to look at that next week, but it's singing and dancing. But before there is singing and dancing, we see there is fear and faith. Look with me in verse 29. It says, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And now here's the response to those who've been saved. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The first thing we see is that we must respond to the salvation of the Lord with fear. Now, normally when you think of fear, you think of maybe an emotion of weakness. You're scared. You're frightened of little things like spiders or rats or whatever it might be. Maybe when you think of fear, you think of a instinct for self-preservation. But here the Israelites fear is a fear of liberation and a fear of celebration. Now, I don't know about you, but, but when I saw that, it was a bit confusing. Like, how does fear lead to joy? How does fear lead to singing and to celebration and to dancing? Well, let's, let's look back at this passage a little bit, and I think I'll be able to show you how fearing God leads to joy. As you look back, as we look through this chapter, what we have seen is that the reason for their fear is because they caught a glimpse of the awesome glory of God, as did the Egyptians. In verse 4, the Lord says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. He's going to reveal his majesty, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 17, the Lord says again, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And then verse 25, the Egyptians said it was undeniable. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. You see, when they got a glimpse of the glory and the power of God, whether you were an Egyptian or whether you were an Israelite, if you got a glimpse of the glory and the power and the awesomeness of God, the natural response is fear. But the difference between Egypt and the difference between Israel is that Egypt's response to fear was one of judgment. But Israel's response of fear was one of salvation. Egypt's fear led to dismay because this meant their destruction. Israel's fear led to joy because it meant their salvation. Israel's fear leads to celebration because this awesome God was for them and not against them. Not only that, but their fear of this awesome God was driving out all other fears. If you remember earlier in the passage, again, Moses commands them, fear not. See the salvation of the Lord. See, fear of God dries out every other inferior fear. Let me illustrate like this. I go play basketball at the YMCA about once a week, more times if I'm lucky. And there's this guy who started coming. I'm actually friends with him. His name's Greg. And Greg is six foot eight inches tall. He is a huge man, and he is ripped, and he is in great shape, and he is a force to be reckoned with. He is a very intimidating person no matter whose team he's on. 
If he's on your team, he's intimidating. If he's on the other team, he's intimidating. But the difference is, if he is on the other team, you fear him because you know he can block your layup from the three-point line. But if he's on your team, you fear him and you pass the ball to him all the time because you know your team is going to win. One fear is one of dismay. The other fear is one of joy. You see, the joyful fear that God brings us to is one who realized that we have this awesome and amazing and conquering God of salvation, but he is on our side. He is on our team. And so it is a fear that does not lead to dismay, but a fear that leads to great joy. And so we must respond to the salvation of the Lord with joyful fear. But secondly, we must respond to the Lord's salvation with faith. Verse 31 says just very simply that Israel believed the Lord. They put their faith in him. Hebrews 11.29 tells us that by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. You know, I started the sermon by saying that we love stories and that we love books and that we love biographies. Because as we learn about other people's stories, we identify them and we see our own story within their story. And so as we look at this story, I just want to ask a simple question. Where are you in this story? Are you on the west side of the Red Sea, standing and surrounded by death? Or have you crossed from death to life and gone to the west side of the sea? I'm sorry, did I get that right? Are you on the west side, surrounded by death, or have you passed to the east side? That's right. The east side's always better. Amen? All right. (laughs) If you are on the west side of the Red Sea, not the Fox River, if you're on the west side of the Red Sea, cowering in fear, of the impending death, you know that you need salvation. And the good news is that the Lord has provided salvation. He has provided a path through his son, Jesus Christ. And you must look to him and walk knowing and believing that he has saved you. On the connection card today, there's actually a part where it says, please send more information. I actually put on there how to be saved. If you're here today and you don't know where you are, you don't know if you're on the east side or west side of the Red Sea, you don't know if you're saved or not saved, I'd love to talk to you about that more. I encourage you to check the box or come talk to me after the service, drop in the offering basket. I'd love to sit down with you and tell you more about the salvation of the Lord and how it can be yours and how you can respond with joyful fear and faith and celebration in the salvation of the Lord. I want to end with a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns, possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another thing to say he is my savior. The devil can say the first, the devil can say Christ is a savior, but only the Christian can say he is my savior. And so I want to ask you today, do you not only know that Christ is the Savior, but have you made Christ 
your Savior? Have you known your need for salvation and looked to the Lord who is author and architect and accomplisher of salvation upon the cross? Look to him, trust him, fear him. See the salvation of the Lord and celebrate. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you would save a people like us, people who have moved themselves into their own bad situation, Lord. And that you have provided a way of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that today. Lord, as we turn to the Lord's table, we are reminded, God, of the way that you provided through your son. And we look to it as a tangible proclamation of the gospel, a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, that he was crushed below the ways that we could be set free. And so, Lord, as we look to these elements, God, we pray that you would take them and that they would not just be bread and wine to us, God, but they would nourish us through your Holy Spirit to rejoice in our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.